The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Good Morning New York Real Estate with Vince Rocco. Our show is all about the exciting world of real estate, and in particular, how it relates to the lucrative New York market. But if you're not planning a real estate transaction in New York, we still have plenty of information that you can use no matter where you are. Now, here's your host, Vince Rocco. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to Good Morning New York. It is Tuesday, a rainy August 11th here in New York. I'm your host, Vince Rocco, and we are coming to you live from Blastoff Studios in New York City. Um, The Hamptons real estate market heated up over the past year with a listing of one of the most expensive properties ever to come to the market in the wealthy star-studded enclave, touting a price tag of $140 million. (sighs) Along with that, there was the usual crop of A-listers from business executives to reality television celebrities who were buying, selling, and renovating their homes in this pricing enclave. Here is a look at some of the most notable transactions of the past year in the Hamptons. Skinny Girl Mogul and star of uh, Real Housewives of New York, Bethany Frankel, purchased a five-bedroom house with pool and guest house in Bridgehampton for close to $4 million. She also purchased a two-bedroom condo in Soho last year for $4.2 million. Her co- co-partner on that show, Luann Delaseps, also from uh, Real Housewives, sold her Bridgehampton house last fall for reported $8 million, and she purchased a new smaller one in Sag Harbor. Edison School's founder and executive Chris Whittle gets the prize for the priciest Hamptons property on the market so far this year, the one we just started the show with, uh, on this 11-acre Georgia Capon estate, and that's on the market for $140 million. Let's see how quickly that sells or what interest we get in that price in that price point. Ramona Singer, another reality star who is in the middle of a divorce, put her Southampton mansion on the rental market this year, this past summer, for $300,000 for the full season. That's $300,000 for the Ooh. full season. Soap opera star Susan Lucci last year put her Dune Road estate on the market for $11 million, and it's still on the market. Maybe a price reduction would help there. Along those lines, (laughs) Tina Brown and her husband Harold Evans are also trying to sell their house on Dune Road for $9.9 million, another needed price reduction, my opinion. Hollywood heartthrob Richard Gere is still trying to sell his North Haven home with a price tag of $47.5 million, down from an original asking price. Of $65 million, CNN star anchor Anderson Cooper has reportedly sold his two houses in Quag for $2.6 and $2.975 million this past year. Jason Kidd, retired NBA player, will take home $7.1 million for his house in Watermill after it went into contract in early May of this year. That was actually a quick sale. And actress Renee Zellweger sold her Egypt Lane house in East Hampton for $4.45 million actually $250,000 over the asking price. I remember when she bought that house right next door to a very good friend of mine. In 2003, she paid $2.3 million. Nice return. All right, we're going to switch gears today, and we're going to talk to a, a book author, Colin Roth. He is a successful, rather, he is a successful entrepreneur, Manhattan real estate developer and author. 
He grew up in Connecticut and started his first business, which was a house painting and refurbishing company, while he was still in college. And he says in his recently self-published book, In It Is What It Is, A True Manhattan Real Estate Nightmare with a Silver Lining, quote, One goes through many rites of passage when becoming a New Yorker. You ain't a real New Yorker if you don't have an obligatory, it was such a disaster real estate story to talk about. For example, maybe you've had bed bugs twice or foolishly passed on the opportunity to buy in Carroll Gardens in the 1980s for under $100,000, thinking this Brooklyn thing would never catch on. So, Colin, good morning. And by the way, everybody, he is calling in from London, England this morning. So how are you today? Very good. Thank you for having him on your show. Uh, thank you for being here. So let's talk about it. it is what it is. It's a new um, book that you self-published. Please tell us about this and why it is important for you to write this at this time. Well, what it is, it was a real estate development project I did with my family. My wife and myself did the design work and basically all the renovation for two brownstones in Manhattan. And we bought the first one in 96 in Chelsea when Chelsea was just turning around at the point. And uh, renovated that and turned around and sold it for over 7,000% profit in 2003. Then mm-hmm. we bought the building next door to renovate that. To We gutted it. It was an SRO. Gutted the whole thing. And we're building a seven-story cantilever building over the other building we had. And we got into all sorts of problems when the foundation contractor, controlled inspector, and my builder's rep all defrauded me and didn't build the building down to bedrock. So it would have fallen over eventually. So I love the story about us. Sorry? No, and then let's get into that a little bit. So the premise of the book seems to be, you know, real estate disaster stories of bad decisions tend to make, they tend to regret. What, you know, in, in writing this, was it cathartic for you or did you just need to tell the story about just how bad real estate transactions could be no, or, or, say, or real was, estate uh, development, better said? That was sort of resolution of getting, you know, we finally, what it was, we went through this whole process and put us into a huge financial nightmare and took us seven years to get out of it. And then finally, once we got through this whole thing, it felt very good to tell the whole story, exactly what happened and how we went through it and how we eventually got through this thing through persevering through this whole nightmare. It was a complete nightmare. We went from doing very well to over $13 million in debt. And we finally cleaned up the whole financial mess, got everything all together. And the silver lining was that we got our mortgage dismissed at the very end. Explain to me how, how in, in a development project on a brownstone where you can be $13 million in debt. I'm not quite sure I understand that number. Well, we took out financing to buy the brownstone, develop the property, and build the property. Right. And we bought, so that was the financing we took out to do that. And at the end of the day, when the financial market collapsed in beginning of 2007, we lost the property. We lost all. We had contracts out to all the people to finish the whole project with deposits out all over us, you know, close to 27 contractors working for us. And we had all this money out to them and they're about in lawsuits, you know, and we had to turn around and sue our foundation contractor. Our builder's risk wouldn't pay off. My insurance company would pay off. We had to turn around and sue everybody. So we went massively in debt and spent seven years getting out of, at the end, 27 different foundation, no, sorry, foundation-based lawsuits and collection agencies. 
So basically, and we for this whole cleared up. Yeah. For, so for clarification for the listening audience here, so a, a project begins on a brownstone. You buy it. You want to renovate it. You want to call it home. But as you go through this process and, you know, being in real estate here, I understand, you know, what that's all about. And I've certainly sold townhouses to people where they have had to, you know, get involved in that kind of activity. But the tone of the book basically tends to lean towards, you know, zingers and insults and slurs. But and 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 I understand the frustration that happens when we're involved in these types of construction projects. How do you think this was received with the public? Have you gotten any indication from uh, publishers or, or, or you know, book reviews on how the public oh, okay. has really you know, responded to this very honest approach to your project? I've got very good reviews. People have found it as very honest and basically tells how the market is. A lot of people have been involved. You know, everybody in New York City that's done any kind of construction has a nightmare of their own to tell. And to see it on such a grand scale and how basically we finally got through this whole thing, people found it very uplifting. Um, it was, uh, you know, an evolving story which involved my whole family and my whole life. Yeah, well, you know, people, the New York Times says the book recounts not only the people you believe wronged you but also the wrongs you committed. It is candid, confident, and at times condescending. Tell us a little bit about what actually went wrong uh, in the process or in the project uh, that you started from from day one, was there a project manager who was supposed to be overseeing the construction of this building, and did it not go well from his perspective yeah, or her perspective? Well, I mean, I no, I worked there. I worked the project full time while working full time, but I also had a project manager. We had a foundation contractor work with us for over seven years on the previous project. I had no problems at all with him, and he was very good with that. And then we had a building inspector that um, subcontracted out all his work that basically had no responsibility to his employees. So basically, when they signed off on something, it didn't really mean anything. So when it came down to everything being, you know, what happened here, everybody passed the buck, which happens a lot in New York real estate. And that's one of the things you have to learn is that you have to double check and triple check everything that's gone because the end responsibility is yours. And I had that, you know, I had three layer, layers of protection trying to protect this project and it fell through. And that was the fallacy. Do you have any type of insurance that, you know, that you can um, buy as you're going through a project like this? I mean, obviously we'll talk about maybe potential lawsuits, you know, a little later on in the talk, but, huh. you know, is there insurance that you can um, have that co covers, yeah, you know, a, a lot of these shortfalls? Yeah, performance bonds. You can get performance bonds performance bonds uh -huh. for your contractors. If a, if a contractor does not do the specified work within a certain time period, the insurance company will pay for the work to be finished or the loss that is incurred. We did everything but performance bonds, and the reason why we didn't do the performance bonds is because the contractor who was doing the work has been working with us for seven years. We had no reason to expect that anything would go wrong. But as you know, in New York market, yeah, anything that can go wrong does go wrong. So that was the one of, you know, it's on a list of the things in the book of the things I should have done. But it's also prohibitively expensive. A performance bond for, let's say, a $700,000 contract is close to $150,000. Yeah, that, that's so very expensive. expensive. And, and is that, does that cover the duration of the project or is it just in, in scope of work or in pieces of the, of the overall project? It's just or how does that scope work? Of work for the, it's scope of work for a specific contract 
for that specific company for the work. Basically, the you know you give them a your uh, work sheet that he's going to be doing for that job, and what he bid on, what he has to do, and you just ensure that specific part of the job. It's very specific. How much work was going to happen in this house? So you bought the house in what condition, and then by the time you finished oh, the project, how much work was needed to be put into this brownstone or this townhouse? The, the, brown, the brownstone was a brownstone from 1853. Mm-hmm. It was an SRO ever since. It was dilapidated, falling down. We had to gut it through, and we, the only thing that stayed up were the two side retaining walls, which were also adjacent to the brownstones next door to it. Right. And we dug down the basement and to dig out the basement to put in a garage and then dug down the foundation to the bedrock below it so we could do it goes up seven stories and cantilever over 30 feet the building next door. Right. So we could be more FAR for the whole building. So we used up all the FAR for the whole space. I was going to ask you if you great. used up your FAR, yeah, because it sounds like you probably did. Yeah, so we used up everything. So it was a complete gut project. The demolition was the problem. I mean, then we built it, and then we also tried to use a lot of green um, ideas with it. We were going to do the top three stores modularly, so they'd be done built over in New Jersey, then brought over in modules and put together, so it would save you time in construction and also money for the construction because you can work 24 hours a day in a warehouse building these modules, and they put them all together. It's all got the electrical, plumbing, everything, tiling and painting. You just basically put them together, seal the seams with them, and they're done. And then we yeah. had geothermal wells being dug. We had two geothermal wells, went down 1,500 feet into bedrock. Um, all the front and back had nano doors, so they opened up completely to give air through and full. There's radiant floor heat and air conditioning throughout the whole building. So in the summer, the floors are cold. In the winter, they're hot. And just to explain briefly, we have about a minute left of the segment. When you talk about digging down in the in the in the home, you're you're digging down because you're making a, a garage and you're making a, a larger basement or or a basement where you have some ceiling height. Is that correct? No, we were putting in a garage. We had a three car garage. You would drive up along 15th Street, pull in, and go down an elevator into a garage which had a turntable, so you could put three cars into a single brownstone garage. Gotcha. Awesome. All right, we're going to take a break. Uh, You are listening to Good Morning New York on the Voice America Variety Channel. We will be right back. Don't go away. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Put Blue Realty Group to work for you. Blue Realty Group is a full-service luxury real estate brokerage firm in Manhattan. With our global reach, unrivaled marketing capabilities, and veteran team, Blue serves some of the world's most exclusive and high-profile buyers and sellers. Visit us today at BlueRealtyGroup.com. At Blue Realty Group, we feel that people matter and results count. Our mission with you is to meet and deliver expectations to drive the results you want. We're ready now. Visit BlueRealtyGroup.com. That's B-L-U-RealtyGroup.com. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Good Morning New York Real Estate with Vince Rocco. If you want to call into the program, we're toll-free in North America 
at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to vrocco at bluerealtygroup.com. That's vrocco at blurealtygroup.com. Now, back to the show. All right, everybody, we're back with Colin Rath, and we're talking about his new book, It Is What It Is, about the New York real estate market, and a book that chronicles um, he and his family's foray into the Manhattan uh, real estate development in trying to convert or renovate a townhouse from the 1800s into what is today. I wanted, Colin, I want to ask a little bit about this. So the, the home is the unique home at 121 West 15th Street in Chelsea. Why take on development projects when that wasn't your, you know, your expertise, you know, prior to your purchase of this? What made you want to get involved in such a very big and very lengthy uh, construction project? Well, like everybody else, back in uh, you know the early 2000, 2001 to 2005, everybody saw the real estate market going through the roof, and we moved into Chelsea in 96, and we saw how, how it was changing so quickly. And at the time, we, had, we bought uh, 121 West 15th Street, renovated that, and turned it into condos and sold that. And our family started growing, so we needed more space, and we started looking for another place, got tired for paying for parking, and wanted to get a garage, and, you know, just various other reasons that New Yorkers wanted a home. And um, so we started looking for another building, and the one next to ours um, came on the market. 123, right. Right. And so, you know, we could combine both uh, properties together into a development, which would give us a curb cut. Uh, would give us a backyard that was 50 by 100, which is large in New York standards. And uh, we could move horizontally and give more space for our growing family. We recently had twins at the time. Hmm. So, it, you know, it made sense. All right, and smack in the middle of the... the... Go ahead, continue. Sorry? No, go continue. No, then we can develop develop the property to, you know, make money to pay for this whole project and then hopefully be able to live in New York semi-cheaply or if not free. All right. Smack in the middle of your development project in 2008, we had a financial crisis. Obviously, you know, with your mortgage and your investments, things kind of went awry. What or how did the the financial meltdown affect you and the people working for you at the time in this development project? Well, the financing stopped, um, basically. Um, What it did is, um, I mean, at that point, we had a certain amount of money left over of capital, which you could use for building the project. But the all of a sudden the bank starts asking for more collateral and you try and give them as much collateral as you have. And then after that, they say, you don't have enough collateral. So we're going to foreclose and we're not going to allow any more capital expenditures to take care of your contractors. So then you have 14 contractors sitting on their hands saying, we're not moving unless we have money. So you have this hole in the ground where actually had structural steel at the time. And we had all the components, you know, modular components done. We had the elevator ready, everything ready to go in all set. We just had to keep on going, keeping these guys going. So you start using your own money to pay everybody along the way. And eventually that dries out. And then once the financial market collapsed, there was zero credit. No one was lending anything, and you couldn't find financing at all. Nowhere. No, that's very true. Let me ask you about the design of these buildings because obviously if you look at them, they are very unusual, very unique to the setting on 15th Street, did you get any feedback, any pushback, any criticisms on the style of these buildings as you were going yeah. through or um, even today? Yeah. Well, that was one of our marketing problems is the, the actual design of the building, the thing you see there, 
mm-hmm. would not be able to see that from the street because the cantilever part was yeah. 15 feet back, 50 feet up. You cannot see it. But, okay. but for marketing purposes, we drew it up like that, so we just sell it to the clients. But the local neighborhood um, people in the neighborhood, and plus the fact, you know, we were doing construction. We had geothermal wells, digging down, you know, full well derricks in front of our building, digging down. And so we, the sidewalk was taken up by our construction project in front of those two buildings for three years. The neighbors okay. weren't happy with that first off. And second off, you start having, you know, local people that are in charge of, or actually self-employed in charge of the street started being vocal about it. And we had sort of like problems with that. But, you know, really, that only just brought stuff to the Department of Buildings with the 311 service, everybody calling up like that. But we were clearing through that all the way through until the end. But, but the modular-looking modular feel, you know, the, the, the very glass, you know, facade. I mean, mm-hmm. I have to imagine, you know, and I don't know if that particular neighborhood or that street is, is landmarked or historic, but I'm wondering how you were able to build that and sort of get away with that, especially if it was not... Um, or if it was a landmark situation, how did you do that? No, no, it wasn't a landmark situation. We made sure okay. it wasn't. Okay. That was one of the things. And plus we had everything, we got everything pre-approved from the Department of Buildings before we even started this whole project. We okay. spent two years getting it approved, pre-approved. Because remember back at the time, a lot of people were doing their own self-approvals with the architects, especially over in Brooklyn and so forth. And mm-hmm. they got a lot of trouble because all of a sudden these guys were putting on additional floors or going over in somebody else's property, and the department building was getting a lot of trouble doing that. So we went into extra effort to try and make sure this had no problems going in. And we were all set, and we wouldn't have done it. The bank wouldn't have given us the money if we weren't pre-approved on everything. But as it was going along, we actually had the whole project reapproved five times by the Department of Buildings. I was down with Max Lee at the Department of Buildings so many times, I knew him on a first-name basis. And we finally got the thing, you know, we'd go down there and get everything all cleared up. But it was just, you know, with the department buildings, once they start pulling you down there, you're down there and go down and make an appointment. Two weeks later, you go down, you got to bring down your plans, got to go do everything with them because everything you give them, they're never going to find when you're there and you're only there for an hour. So you got to prearrange everything you do for them. The Department of Buildings is not easy to uh, maneuver through. I've had experience with that myself. Let's talk about some of the lessons. You know, ultimately, you know, the the project got completed. But what what are some of the lessons learned from this project as you talk about in the book that you know uh, we can tell the listening audience? And what are you still and what are you still passionate about if you are uh, with regard to New York development in New York City? Would you do it again? Uh, I would do it again. I would make sure I have a lot deeper pockets to do it so I wouldn't have to borrow as much money. And what I would do is do it on a lesser scale. I tried to do everything on one scale, you know, try to do everything at the same time. Mm-hmm. And it just didn't, it was just overwhelmed. I mean, starting to talk to people about geothermal wells and then how you're doing a cantilever floor. And these guys just, you know, start glazing in your eyes. Right. So it's best to just, you know, do one, you know, pick your battles and do it one at a time. Do but you uh, feel... I wouldn't do it on a quick start. No, go ahead. Continue. No, I just the, the scale. Just try, we tried to do too many different things on one project and make it as a green design as we wanted. We should have just done, you know, pick two or three aspects we want to do and then go forward with that. Because there's still a lot of stuff. I mean, that can be done in New York City, and they're starting to get the developments. But I mean, this 
problem with New York City, the change everybody fights in the neighborhood is the thing that makes the city so alive. Mm-hmm. And that's what a lot of people miss. Yeah, well, yeah, I, I, I agree. Give us the give us the status of the, the project, so to speak, or the house or houses today. Where are you with all of it? Uh, with all of it, um, presently, my condo at 121 West 15th, we have it on the market. We're selling it for 3.18, mm-hmm. and we're trying to get that thing sold. And the other building has been sold to another developer. And the ironic part is that we sold the roof rights to the third floor condo on 121, and he's going to build the cantilever system that we we're planning on doing. <laughs> so in the end, at the end... So at the end, the building is going to look like we kind of wanted to do in the end. The garage is there. It's a little bit different, I want. And my condo is going for sale. And my family, we took off last October and we're sailing around the world. And I, wanted to get to that in a minute. I wanted to get to that in a minute, but let me ask you about we the 3.1. We want applause 1. in the studio. We're going to clap. We're going to applaud you in a minute. Sir. Yeah, I want to be around the world. That's what I want. But uh-huh. anyway, what, $3.1 million, is that, is that what the market is able to bear for that apartment or is it a little high priced? Uh, it's a place to bear. It's twenty three hundred and two thousand three hundred sixty six square feet. Right. It's a unique apartment. It has a uh, three woodworking fireplaces, three bedrooms, Ooh. two full baths, hot tub in the backyard, a twelve um, foot waterfall in the living into a living room into a scale replica of the Yangtze River with koi fish swimming out to the backyard. Oh my gosh! Uh, it's got a, it's got a lot of neat things. Look it up. It's on Corcoran. It's uh, 121 West 15th Street, the Garden Apartment. And uh, take a look. It's going on the market. We have somebody interested, and we're going to contract, but it's still on the market until it's sold. It's out there. Okay. That's good to know. But I want to ask you you know, one last question about a comment you recently made in the Real Deal article saying, quote, don't think you can control the press. What did you mean by that? And did the press kind of hurt you through this whole project? Uh, the ups and downs of the project, and certainly through to today. What 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 did you mean by that comment? Well, the article, the original, the article we did uh, for the New York Times, saying "Not in my backyard," was mm-hmm. original. The article title mm-hmm. for it. We originally talked to the guy for about doing the green design, and the whole article was supposed to be emphasis of doing the green design of the building and everything else of how it's going to be a neat construction and so forth like that, the geothermal wells and stuff like that. Back at the time, there was only nine geothermal wells. Now I think there's like maybe 15 or something, but anyways. But the, um, the main point of the article was going to be on the design. But he turned it all the way around and talked to the SRO tenant that actually um, moved in later. But anyways, that we, she tried to um, change her lease. Anyways, and we had to pay her off to get out and uh, – the guy in charge of 15th Street, well, the only member and the guy in charge of 15th Street, um, Robert Bonington, about how he was. And this guy was just looking for a soapbox to talk. So the whole article will change around to that and actually did cost us one of the sales for the new building. But uh, after, the pre- after that, you know, you realize that the press is all press is good press, press is bad press, but in the end, it's press. So you just got to work with what it is. And, and press is always going like to be I press, say, and you got to really control that. Though I, I, I can sort of understand what you're talking about. So we have a couple of seconds, a couple of minutes left. Let me just ask you, what's next for you? Obviously, you just said that you're traveling around the world with your family. Where are you? Uh, we're in London, England. We just did. I just did a transatlantic race in which I got first in my division from uh, yeah. Newport, Rhode Island to Ca- to Cowes, England, 
and I'm here with my wife, my uh, three daughters, uh, twin 10-year-olds and a 14-year-old, my Alaskan Malamute dog, Aspen, and my cat, Wasabi, and we're sailing around the world. Even the pets, isn't that something? Sailing around the world, and for the people that weren't listening before, because I think you told us personally, you're sailing around the world for the next three years. Yeah. Yes. Good point. Right? Yes. Wow. Well, actually, what the whole idea is we're looking, once we sell the condo, we're looking for a new place to live. And the, uh, so far, we know some deciding... good brokers to call. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Colin, listen, well, thank you so much. We're looking for New Zealand. Thank you so much. The book is called It Is What It Is, A True Manhattan Real Estate Nightmare with a Silver Lining. Colin, quickly, where can we find this book? For the listening uh, the audience out there. On, it's on Amazon, Barnes & Noble. You can go to colinrath.com, C-O-L-I-N, last name R-A-T-H.com. And then also, if you want to follow us on Facebook with our travels around the world, we're at um, Facebook. It's Persevere, P-E-R-S-E-V-E-R-E, 60545. And that's our Facebook page. And um, buy the book and find out what the silver lining. The silver lining is the best part. All right, everybody. Once again, it is what it is, a true Manhattan real estate nightmare with a silver lining. Colin Rath, thank you so much for being with us today. Enjoy that three-year journey around the world. Stay in touch and good to hear from you. Wow. Thank you very much. Thank you. But um, the We'll be part, right back I mean, after these messages, everybody. Sure. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. Put Blue Realty Group to work for you. Blue Realty Group is a full-service luxury real estate brokerage firm in Manhattan. With our global reach, unrivaled marketing capabilities, and veteran team, Blue serves some of the world's most exclusive and high-profile buyers and sellers. Visit us today at BlueRealtyGroup.com. At Blue Realty Group, we feel that people matter and results count. Our mission with you is to meet and deliver expectations to drive the results you want. We're ready now. Visit BlueRealtyGroup.com. That's B-L-U-RealtyGroup.com. Streaming live. The leader in Internet talk radio. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Good Morning New York Real Estate with Vince Rocco. If you want to call into the program, we're toll-free in North America at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to vrocco at bluerealtygroup.com. That's vrocco at blurealtygroup.com. Now, back to the show. All right, everybody, we're back with our star panel. And today we have Niall Lundgren, Rachel Altschiller, Phil Horrigan, Ivy Ray, and Deborah Hoffman. Good morning, everybody. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. I love that good morning every week. And and America and the world. And, and the world. world. And so New York happy City. to be together with you. We yeah. really are. Every I know. Tuesday. We missed last week. We had a break last week. Actually, um, we're going to be taking another break next week and the week after. So good morning, New York. We'll um, come back in early September with live shows. But for the next two weeks, we're going to be on hiatus and a well-deserved time off. What are you doing with your time, Vince? Oh, wait, can I say one thing? <laughs> yeah, I question. want to hear about that. But the one thing to say is that our listeners can – you're going to have shows running. Some of your favorite shows Sh- are going to be running. Thank you at for this that. this time, during that 
in that time slot. If you missed it the first time. Tuesday. If you missed it the first time. Thank you, Ivy Ray. But yes, we will have repeat episodes next week and the week after. We haven't decided which two yet, but uh, that will be done today. Um, I am spending the summer, the August, the month of August, in Connecticut at a very wonderful house. Fabulous. Fabulous. With With Jet. With Jet and and a couple of very dear friends. Mm -hmm. And uh, the pool is wonderful. The sun has been extraordinary. Um, even the great. even the gym looks wonderful, right? Don't you find you're a better real estate broker when you get away? Uh, yes, and get and guess what? You can still work while you're away. You don't totally. have to be pounding the pavements century. in Manhattan. Start the morning with this little laptop, sitting over coffee and just answering, you know, overnight emails, and then doing what you have to do, and then all of a sudden. It's gym time, and then all of a sudden it's pool time, and, <laughs> and then I'm, all of a sudden I'm it's lunch time. That because we're always available. Yeah. I mean, every yes. second of the day, mm-hmm. when you get away, your clients value you so much more because you're not available that second, and they sometimes need to be reminded of that. So that sometimes that it's good people, to get away. That we're, that we're human. Yeah. We bleed the same blood. Yeah. That we're people. That <laughs> you know, it's 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 very true because I think you know they sometimes get the feeling that if you're not constantly on you know, guard and on call Mm -hmm. 24 by 7 that, you know, they're not going to get the service that they deserve. And actually, I think in the last week and a half or whatever it's been, um, I'm giving just the same amount of service, probably a little better because Mm -hmm. I'm not so stressed. I'm not so plugged in, but yet I'm not unplugged. So it's kind of you find that little balance, Mm -hmm. that that wonderful word balance that everybody talks about. Well, you know what? Balance is everything. And it's necessary. Yeah. So it's been a fun week and a half, and um, I'm looking forward to the next several weeks. And, you know, on the fly, I've just decided this morning we're going to not do next week and just take one more week off and Good two more you, weeks Vince. off. Good That's amazing. You. So there there we have it. So um, check out the Facebook page for updates. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, we'll get to, into some topics here. It's easy enough to it, – it's easy enough to count supply or number of listings, but – Quantifying demand becomes very tricky when faced with an increasingly global buyer pool. This creates a serious challenge for developers who need to know how much they can sell individual units for to decide if a project is worthwhile. When the buyer pool was largely local, this was easy enough. But who totally knows, but who today knows how many people around the world can afford an ultra-luxury apartment and how many of them would be willing to buy one in New York? I mean, that's really the question. How do we know where these people are coming from? How are developers deciding that they're going to put up one you know, luxury tower after another and just expect that flow in of, of buyers? Where is you – know, first of all, where are they coming from just so the, the listening audience around the world understands the buying power uh, of our clients here? Where are they coming from and how do we know that this can sustain? Yeah, is it sustainable? I think it's a big curious question mark, a big one in the city on all, from all directions. Go somebody. I think too, like when you look at some of the bigger towers, like 157, for example, uh, in a recent sales meeting at my company, we were just talking about how that building has so many units and there's now a whole influx of new units that are hitting the market. Now 157 is becoming something of, of last year and mm-hmm. it's you know not the hot topic mm-hmm. anymore. And you have the 432 parks of the world, for example. So when that starts <laughs> to happen, you have these, these larger towers where the apartments become more negotiable because they're, you know, for all intents and purposes, passe. And you have all these new towers coming up. So I don't know if the developers are you know, making guesses on how many people 
um, can end up buying these. But at the end of the day, I think that there's going to be, you know, for these for the brand new towers, there'll be, you know, big rushes to sell out. But then there will be these apartments that linger on the market where, you know, some of the the, the new shiny buildings are going to attract those foreign investments. I think mm-hmm. it's also important to clarify if we're talking about an emerging market versus an already existing strong market. So if you're talking about Billionaire Row, very different answer than Brooklyn. So the developments I'm working with are smaller in Brooklyn, more boutique, and we are creating record pricing in Brooklyn. Mm-hmm. So if you look at Bed-Stuy, Clinton Hill, those areas – if you do comps, they're typically around 900 to 1,000 a square foot on the new, in the new developments. So if you're working with a developer now, you're going to find they're going to want to beat that. Mm-hmm. And so who's buying those? Mm-hmm. Those are the first-time buyers. Those are the families, the young families that want to move into the better school systems. So there you're going to find a different buyer than a yeah. foreign buyer. Mm-hmm. And yeah. along the lines of what Rachel Absolutely. just said is I had dinner last week with a developer who only does conversions. And what that means is <clears throat> rental buildings that they want to convert to a condo. And he's in the process of doing two right now in Manhattan, which have not launched or anything. And he's done a few in uh, before that. Uh, he said something very interesting that there are only so many billionaires in the world. And he knows he is guaranteed high market or low market to make his money back and more by selling to the market that's neglected. And he said right now the market that's neglected is the one to five million dollar buyers, mm-hmm. whether they be first time buyers, second home buyers, Empty or investors. families. That's very yeah. true. And mm-hmm. empty, which I thought was just so, really interesting. I've been tossing around in my head. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And the low inventory mm-hmm. really, I mean, how long is this going to last? If you do mm-hmm. a search for three bedrooms in Brooklyn in the emerging markets, I think the last search I did in Bed-Stuy, Clinton Hill, and Fort Greene, there's seven three bedrooms. Seven. Yeah. In those three neighborhoods. Yeah. Three neighborhoods. That's incredible. So larger apartments, um, high quality, uh, special washer dryers in the unit, higher ceilings, those kind of things will fly by for the first-time buyers. That's what they're looking for. They're savvy. That's what they want. Mm -hmm. Empty nesters, same thing. And are you finding in Brooklyn, because this is such a great conversation, yeah. that right where it is that you were just speaking about, are these developers making things obviously gorgeous, obviously, you know, substantial, mm-hmm. but not crazy high end? So that Not too people, high end right? where they don't see a return. Beautiful. So you want to do it. You want to go low end on certain things, high end on others. Mm-hmm. Not low yeah. end, but lower. Like we were, ta- we little, were talking about. A little about, lower. Yeah. A little lower. Yeah, yeah. One of the developers yeah. I'm working with is talking about a garage. Do you need a garage there? No, you're close to the train. You're not going to get it back. They care more about outdoor space. Let's mm-hmm. do a garden. Yeah. Let's do a common garden instead of a garage. Mm-hmm. Those type of things that but you this, really have to work this with. This housing will be somewhat point. affordable mm-hmm. yeah. for mid to low high. Right. They don't have a car. Something. They don't yeah. care that much Beautiful. about it. Yeah. I'm glad to hear it. And on yours mm-hmm. too. Yep. Yeah. Deborah, that's great news. I think, yeah. the pen- I think the pendulum swings back and forth. And a client of mine said to me the other day, you know, so, along the lines of what Ivy just said, how many billionaires are out there, number one? And number two, how many of them want to park money in New York? I mean, you know, New York is the greatest, you know, marketplace in the world, but there are other places. And sometimes people say, I just don't want to invest in New York or I'm already invested in New York. Mm-hmm. How much more already can I is. put in? So then we talk about what Niall and Rachel were talking about, you know, the, the, the next generation of – so you sell the building out and all these people buy. Now they go on the market for resale. How many other people are going to be – 
in line to buy these. And then you got to be careful of the next generation or the generation that says, hey, by the way, I can't afford 20 million or 14 million or whatever. I can only afford between one and five. I still want brand new. I don't want my finishes challenged. I still want, you know, a decent apartment for a decent amount of money in New York. So I sort of agree that the developers have a huge challenge today to kind of figure out who out there is going to be buying the next set of these condos. You know, I think with this pendulum going back and forth, the limited inventory that we have, you just don't know what's going to strike in any market. But right now, I'm going to be very curious to see where the next phase, and that's probably over the next two to three years, mm-hmm. of buildings comes out mm-hmm. and where we, so where we place. You know, I want to say one thing. I had an experience for a first-timer for me, which is very interesting. So I have a long-time buyer. We've done a number of transactions very successfully. We've become, obviously, you know, really close. He has become a rock star and a half all over Eastern Europe, a reality show, blah, blah. He's a doctor. For the longest time, he was coming back, and Vince, you know this, he was going to be buying a two- or a three-bedroom. And he was all juiced about all the properties that, you, that all of us were just referring to. I just spoke to him, and he went, you know what? I'm going to wait and watch. I don't know if I want to reinvest in New York. Oh, that's, that's exactly He's right. He's like, he said, I, I'm not so sure, man. I don't know what's going to happen. Uh, they've done so much so fast. The landscape has changed and, you know, he's my buddy. He's like, it may not be so cool for me anymore. He's He might wait for the next spot on earth where he could put down his, his next five million, six million bucks, buy a two-bedroom in some incredible new place that isn't killing their city. Like, he just went, Ivy, I don't know. I'm coming to town. I'm going to check out what it feels like now because mm-hmm. he's had a lot of friends come over the summer. And they left going, it's changing there. Wow. Whoa. That's a you know, along well, those lines, it's interesting because I saw a uh, new development which is just launching last week. Actually, it's a conversion. I'm not going to mention the address or the location because of what I'm going to say. The finishes were beautiful. The floor plans were so generous. The views were beautiful. And everything was at least a million dollars overpriced for the market to bear in that neighborhood. So I started thinking about who the developer was and their past developments. They had done some conversions. And a couple are still not sold out from close to 10 years ago. So that – I don't know what to say about it. It just makes me and I think all of us wonder. I I would bring a client there. I would live there in a heartbeat, but not at a million dollars overpriced at least. So they're not selling because the price point is – Well, it was just launched, but every broker – it was a special broker party and everyone that was in there, as we walked out, we all rolled our eyes and said, did you see the prices? Yeah. Yeah, they're trying to set records, and the problem yeah. with that is you can piss off a buyer and a broker very, very quickly. Yeah, that's the problem. The other thing, there's yeah. a damn ceiling, you guys. Yeah. There is, and it moves, yeah. but yeah. You're right. the ceiling moves right. all over the place. But that's people right. need not hindsight, but foresight. Mm-hmm. Yeah, people, we, the, the, some, somebody's got to have some vision and going. You know what? Yeah. Well, it's going to drop. It has to. It always does. It fluctuates, mm-hmm. and let's create something like you were saying, like you were saying, that actually is going to be for the next people or the people that are waiting in line that are priced out. Yeah, yeah. and that's exactly what happened. I have a, a buyer I'm working with right now. He's been, um, you know, outbid in a couple of apartments, and he's, you know, the fatigue is setting in, and he said, you know what? I think I'm just going to rent for now and just wait for the next market to crash. 
you know, and I was like, wow, you know, when do you think that's going to happen? He's like, you know, with all the development, everything that's going on, you know, it might happen in two or three years. So I could just hang tight for Didn't right now. Say, uh, 12 year. Don't they say every 12 years? Isn't that what that's what say? that's what he, that's what he said. <laughs> I've heard that yeah, right you know, before. Right. The downturn. I used to hear that all the right. time. I'm I just going right to take a back seat and yeah. wait until the market slows down yeah. or crashes or yeah. whatever. And yeah. I'd always say typical, you know. Successful you, broker. Well, it's not going to happen. Yeah. So you you might need to rethink that that strategy. Mm-hmm. And if it does, it bounces right back up. Very yeah, quickly. exactly. Absolutely, yeah. absolutely. Well, th- therein Still lies the challenge happen. to developers because again, <clears throat> they need to figure out what it is um, going to take to continue. You know, with this cycle of successful selling of condos, but get it right and get it right for everybody out there, including the one million dollar. I mean, for example, in a lot of these, most of these new buildings, they aren't building. Uh, studios any longer because you know they're so high priced that people who buy studios typically you're not going to spend a million plus on a studio in a new development uh, it's just not going to happen we do have to go to break uh, but first you are listening to Good Morning New York on the Voice America Variety Channel we will be coming right back the internet's number one talk station number one talk VoiceAmerica.com Put Blue Realty Group to work for you. Blue Realty Group is a full-service luxury real estate brokerage firm in Manhattan. With our global reach, unrivaled marketing capabilities, and veteran team, Blue serves some of the world's most exclusive and high-profile buyers and sellers. Visit us today at BlueRealtyGroup.com. At Blue Realty Group, we feel that people matter and results count. Our mission with you is to meet and deliver expectations to drive the results you want. We're ready now. Visit BlueRealtyGroup.com. That's B-L-U-RealtyGroup.com. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Good Morning New York, real estate with Vince Rocco. If you want to call into the program, we're toll-free in North America at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to vrocco at bluerealtygroup.com. That's vrocco at blurealtygroup.com. Now, back to the show. All right, everybody, we're back with our panel, and we're going to talk about, in this last segment, um, something that we uh, did two weeks ago, the department a pedestrian etiquette. We're going Here to finish we go. that. Yes. But first, I, I want to get one topic. more topic. Um, so as the prospect of home ownership slips away from more and more New Yorkers, there could be an unlikely solution. Renting to own. So rent to own. Okay. That's usually very popular in the suburbs. According to a recent article in the Wall Street Journal, there has been a resurgence of rent to own homes in some areas of the country, again, mostly in the burbs, letting those who otherwise wouldn't be eligible for home ownership to chase their dream. One of the most popular programs is called Home Partners of America, a rent to own firm founded by a former Goldman, former Goldman Sachs executive after he after the last housing bubble burst in 2008. So rent to own basically says, I want to buy a house. I don't have enough down payment right now. I may make a big salary to pay the mortgage and the taxes and the upkeep, but I don't have that down payment yet. So I'm going to ask the homeowner if I can rent for a year or two. I actually did this way back whenever. So did I. And right. then a 
percentage of that rental will go towards an eventual down payment and mm-hmm. an eventual purchase, whatever. Very popular way back in the 80s uh, when I did it and, and you know, throughout um, the following 10 years in the suburbs. I don't know that it ever existed in New York City. So mm-hmm. my question here is, could this program work for New York City apartments? I mean, hey, has man. anybody ever explored the possibility of this? Yeah. We all have something. To I say. know we yeah. have. So, I did. I structured an incredible deal for a client in uh, twenty in, down in on near Wall Street in one of the top buildings. What kind and of co-op was, or a condo? Condo. Okay. Yeah. No, I'm you have to so specify. Much, I met I so much the co-op gal. That's you, babe. <laughs> so anyway, thank you, it's about The individual owner. Yeah. And it was a beautiful deal. And it was, you know, more rent up front for monthly and a percentage of it was going into the down payment. Mm-hmm. And he had a year to decide if he was going to move forward. Did with they this lock in a the price tenant. or did Absolutely. they leave it to market value? Oh, no, we locked in a price. I got him the most amazing deal. That's what wow. the I hardest found... thing is, though, to lock in a price. I know. Well, my attorney at the time went, Ivy, you go, girl. But mm-hmm. the guy, the, the seller had had his place on the market, couldn't sell it. I mean, it was just a win-win for everybody. Yeah, yeah. We had a great tenant. He had a great history. Had, who keeps talking? Bill does. Phil. Uh, Phil. Um, oh, hi, I was just going to say – oh, hi. Hi, Ivy. Um, I, I was just going to say I think there's a difference between, uh, between rent with an option to buy and these rent-to-own programs. Um, I don't see the rent-to-own programs being a, a big thing here, and I think you have to be careful. I was reading up on, on this recently, and from what I understand, at least on some of these programs, you wind up paying more in rent than you would otherwise if you would rent, and you wind up paying more That's for true. the sale when you eventually buy it. So. You know, it's it's really you have to really be careful and make sure that you know you understand that uh, if you're going to get involved in something like this. I agree with you, and you have to have an extraordinary attorney, and you better have an incredible broker so that everything is covered. I agree with you. I, we didn't pay more price wise for sale, but they were paying a little bit more rent wise. A percentage of it every single month was going toward that, unless mm-hmm. of course they decided at the end of the year to walk away, and then they had paid what they were paying. For rent, Brilliant. agreed, uh, you know, and they agreed upon it. It was an incredible opportunity. So that's all. All right. So my two cents on that is, you know, I don't know that it's going to ever take off as being a hot potato here in New York like it used to be in the suburbs or par- apparently still uh, becoming again. But you never know. Certainly in a condo deal, it's doable. In a co-op deal, it is not doable. Um, but let's see where it goes. I mean, again, you know, people find or try to find creative ways to get around um, things like, well, I want to buy, but I can't afford to just yet. And maybe for the younger set, this is something that they can look forward to and and make make it work for them. I think we have commitment issues in New York City. And so <laughs> that's how I'm going to sum up this conversation with yeah. just saying commitment issues. It won't work in New York City. There we go. And on – go ahead. I, I was going to say that ever since the financial downturn, and we've all seen this, a lot of the condo buildings have gotten a lot stricter with what – even though – it is real property and it's not a co-op, but the boards are getting a little iffy on, well, this person can't buy three or four units in the building. We may not get financing for the whole building. So I don't know. I really don't know if this would happen on Moss. You know, certain buildings it might work out, but I think it's a cool Moss. consideration. I agree. Yeah, I agree. It's, it's a agree. cool consideration. I would be really happy if it it's a cool consideration a kind of opportunity. And I hear you about the commitment thing, but I don't agree with you all the way down the line. <laughs> and I also worry the thing about, about protecting protecting brokers, they're ready to commit because everything yeah. else is so I, wild. I worry about brokers oh, yeah. being protected in those deals and again, having a great attorney, but, right. but having the owner slash seller, you know, really honor the contract it's all in that's, writing that's and i actually made money I, yeah. I had i was given an incentive to make the deal work 
Wow. So it was a, a beautiful Well, scenario. in our listing agreement, if the tenant, it's in our agreement, buys. if yeah. the tenant buys, yes. we get paid. And yeah. I always think to myself, after 14 years, I think we're, we've been doing this the same amount of time, almost 15 years. I always think, did anyone buy their apartment and we just didn't know about just it? Didn't and know. they just we have got to follow away with up. paying. We have to so, follow up. So, you know, I don't have time to follow up on everything. That's why you, you? have an assistant. It's like, well, there <laughs> well, you go. They don't well, have time alerts. either. Alerts in your calendar. Well, but you know what? That's a very good alerts point because I don't know that. I mean, I certainly have had the same situation and I don't know if anybody mm-hmm. had. I mean, it's mm-hmm. never been brought, been brought to my attention. Right. So, um, who knows? But yeah. that's yeah, something to. To kind of think about on a rainy Tuesday afternoon. Anyway, let's get to the Department of Pedestrian Etiquette because every time I talk about this, I want to laugh. I'm going to read this one more time. A notice from the New York City Department of Pedestrian Etiquette dated July 10th, so last month, is warning anyone warning anyone who plans to navigate the sidewalks of this town that there are new changes to be implemented. <laughs> Nyla is not believing me yet again. Here we go. Specifically, I'm not, I'm not violating any either. pedestrian etiquette rules will respond will result in denial of permission to enter the city for a period of no less than one year. Very harsh. Effective April 1st, 2016, all new residents and visitors to New York City over the age of 16 will be required to take a mandatory training session on proper etiquette for navigating the sidewalks <laughs> It's and so streets of greater metropolitan. Listen, I'm just and reading the news. grandfathered in? Yeah, Vin, yeah exactly. <laughs> but there's Vin, no grandfather. Are they going to double the police force and then just yeah, start giving people tickets this? on the street? Because the that'll, that'll add new ways more traffic. You know what? That's a very good question. How because are they going to police that? I know how they're going to police it. Video that cameras? guy that our guest was talking about on 15th Street, who was the self-appointed block and only member of the block association, yeah. <laughs> he and people like him will police it. He'll I have guarantee. a little patrol badge, right? He'll have a little... Like the cross guard when you were in elementary school. Listen, here's – but I I mean I agree with what Niall says. I mean how on earth are you possibly going to do that? I mean walking with your face in a map or mobile device. I mean does everybody in the world not walk with their face on the phone? I mean even in Connecticut they do. With crime going up – I mean crime is going up yeah. Let's worry about some more important things than people texting and walking at the same time. That's where I stand on this. But at the same time, it's like maybe it's not a bad idea if they're if they're developing so many you know new housing <laughs> stock, right? And the absorption rate is so rapid. I don't know. What about I, driving? God, I, I'm more God. concerned about driving and texting <laughs> I, wait, and then no, no, on the no. road. Hi, Phil. The original. Hi, guys. The original notice of this, I, I believe, from what I'm re- my research tells you, this was found on the front door of a building in the East Village. The Village Voice picked it up. And at the bottom, it says, for more information, please contact New York City Official Pedestrian Etiquette Committee at NewYorkCityTouristLearnHowToWalk.com. And if you go to that website, it doesn't even exist. <laughs> it's a shtick. Oh, oh, my God. No. It's a shtick. It's a shtick. <laughs> Well, I, <laughs> just, oh, God, you should see Bill's face. At home. No, 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 no. Funnier I, at home. I was going to let the cat out of the bag at the end of this whole whatever, but okay. Uh, well, oh. no, but hold on a minute. But thank you, Phil. But 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 just think about some of these things. So walking with big bags on narrow sidewalks, or walking with a big backpack and and pushing yourself into the subway car. It's kind of like really, how do you do that? And and don't you get bothered by that stuff when when people do it? I mean, I do. Standard. Absolutely. <laughs> you live in New York City. Sometimes I push go, back guys. depending how obnoxious they are. But, you know, I'm going to bring up one thing. Back in the 70s when people just had as many dogs almost as they do now in New York City and into the 80s, and we, I've always had dogs and I've always lived in New York, they started talking about, you know what, someday you're going to have to pick up that dog's poop. And people were like, what? 
what? You have oh, yeah. To go. We're yeah. going to have to pick up poop. Oh, yeah. I'm going to pick up. This was the discussion. No, the pooper and I scooper. I will never forget when it happened. Of course. And how many New York City people with dogs were pissed off? How many people were like, you're going to, what? You want me to. And now, is this a standard process? You actually get New Yorkers screaming at you if you have the yeah. nerve to walk away yes. from a pile of steamy poop. It's true. Yes. And then it's even in Paris. I went to Paris, and it was like poop everywhere. And now even Paris. I mean, things do happen. I mm. think the cell phone thing would be cool because there's more pedestrian accidents and bike accidents than there have ever been, and cell yeah. phones and car accidents. Mm. So mm-hmm. many having to do with people. Terrible, terrible, terrible. About it That's is, cool. is driving. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. No, and, walking, yeah, so yesterday, the yesterday yeah. there was a death on 2nd Avenue and yes. 49th Street. Yeah. I actually walked by there right after it happened. I was with well, a, I I saw was it with on a the client, yeah. and it was just a car that was going super fast, and somebody um, was just, just on the street ju- looking, at, looking, looking at their at cell their phone, phone. And, the, and the car jumped the curb, and decapitated yeah. or took their legs off. Yeah. I, I was going to end. you got to be aware yeah. on those Because streets. that car was cut off. Yeah. I watched the whole thing on the news. You, yeah. you absolutely do. I was going to end this and, and Phil scoop me and thank you again. But, um, you know, in, in all the research I tried to do from two weeks ago to today, I couldn't find anywhere <laughs> anything to back this up. Uh-huh. Uh, so I was going to end today's segment by saying, guess what? It's probably a lark because, you know, whatever. But at the end of the day, when you think about some of these things that we talked about, you know, they are annoying to us who, you know, those of us who, you know, peruse through the streets every day to get our jobs done. Anyway, we have to end. That is Good Morning New York for today. Don't forget we're off the next two weeks, but you will have encore uh, presentations of two um, popular shows coming up. We return live to the airwaves on September 1st. You can always catch the show later in the day on podcast or anytime on our website, voiceamerica.com. For all of us at Voice America, all around the world, thanks for joining all of us today, and we will see you on September 1st. Bye, everybody. Bye-bye. Great summer. All right. Bye-bye. Thanks for tuning in this week. Please join us for another edition of Good Morning New York Real Estate with Vince Rocco next Tuesday at 9 a.m. Eastern Time, 6 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Here's hoping all of your transactions are successful ones.